Isn't that a great new hymn that we've been learning? And um, so thankful for that. And again, so thankful for the musicians who are leading our worship and giving us um, words to sing that will drive our hearts to a deeper trust of Christ. Take your copy of the Scriptures now and open with me to John chapter 16. John chapter 16. And as you're turning there, would you bow with me in prayer as I ask the Lord to give us instruction from this word. Father, we thank you that we've been able to gather together this morning, though in an obviously unusual way. We thank you for your grace that has provided for us this week. We thank you for your grace that will provide for us in the coming week. We thank you for the grace that will lead us to walk into your arms one day soon. We thank you, Father, as well, for the grace of your word. It's not just a word that we say when we say your word is gracious. Your word provides the grace that we need. Your Word provides the sustenance we need. Your Word provides the comfort that we need. And so, our Father, this morning, would You guide us into an understanding of what You would have us to know of You? And would You guide us into an understanding of what we would know about ourselves so that we might love You? And, Father, particularly that we might trust You more fully in the coming week. So would you guide us by these words from our Savior to his disciples, not just the 12 disciples, but those of us who have come from their ministry. So would you guide us by these words from our Savior to us? We pray in his name. Amen. This is an odd morning. I've preached to this church body somewhere on the order of almost 1,400 times by my count. I have never preached to music that has been recorded by our musicians ahead of time, and I have never preached to an empty auditorium. Truth be told, I have never preached on a Friday afternoon as if it is Sunday morning for a broadcast on Sunday morning, which is what I am doing today. There have been Sundays when attendance is low, but there's never been a Sunday like this when the sanctuary was completely empty. These are hard days. I found myself this week, even this morning, as we are worshiping together with with tears right on the cusp of my eyelids, already longing for, already looking forward to that time when we, when we gather together. For, for while we are worshiping in this way and it is appropriate for us to worship in this way, this is, this is desperately wrong. We need to be together. We want to be together. And we are looking forward to that time when we can be together. And, and the fact that we are separated is reminding us of the difficulties and the burdens and the hardships of this world, of, of this time. Life is hard, isn't it? Times are tough. 
there are burdens. Most of us have, have seen other events that are classified as pandemics, but none of us has lived through a time when churches are voluntarily closing their doors for worship in an attempt to stop the pandemic. Every single person, and that is not an overstatement, every single person in this country has been impacted in some way by this event. We are all feeling the weight, the burden, the difficulty, the trouble of these days. And perhaps these days are leading you to ask questions like the one an 11-year-old gave John Piper after John Piper preached in his church one Sunday morning. The question that the young boy wrote was this, If God promises to meet all of our needs, why are we hungry? In other words, is God still good and is God doing good in our circumstances? Will God provide for us? Can we trust God? Is He trustworthy? There are enough stories of suffering in this world, even even apart from the coronavirus, that it might be tempting for us to say, life is not as good as what we thought we would have when Christ promised us new life. Life is just hard. Life is unreasonably hard. Life, Life shouldn't be this way. I suspect that there are many Americans and many believers who feel that way this morning, even if they would be unwilling to say it that way this morning. Where will we turn in our trouble and where will we turn in our trial? What will we do in this circumstance? And beginning this morning and for the next eight weeks or more, or as long as the coronavirus persists, I want to take some time to think with you about a number of truths to help us endure during these days. We want, as a church body, to keep things looking as normal as possible and to worship as normally as we normally do. But it is obvious that things are not normal. And frankly, to continue preaching in the book of Romans as we have been doing, as if everything is normal, seems to me to just be ignoring the elephant that is in the room. We need help. We need encouragement. We need hope. We need direction So today I begin this series with the words of our Savior from John chapter 16, words about suffering. We in our culture do not suffer well. We in the church of Jesus Christ by and large do not suffer well. Certainly the church of Jesus Christ in America does not suffer well. And we we need to hear words of hope in the midst of our suffering, so that we might persist and continue and move forward towards Jesus Christ. So listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 16. Let me draw your attention to the final two verses of that chapter, verses 32 and verse 33. Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me alone, And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Our Savior reminds us in this passage that we live in a trouble-filled world. 
As I've already said, it is not simply coronavirus that gives us trouble. We have trouble on many fronts, in many circumstances, in many situations. This passage, though, reminds us not just that we live in a trouble-filled world, but it also reminds us that Christ has given us everything we need to be at peace and have courage. In our difficulty, in our trial, whether it is coronavirus or financial, whether it is cancer or a car accident, whether it is a relational difficulty or some kind of conflict at work or a lack of finances or a concern about our finances, the Lord has given us every single thing we need to be at peace and He has given us everything that we need to have courage for these days. And as we look at this passage I want us to be reminded of three aspects of our suffering and of God's provision. Three aspects of our suffering and our troubles and of God's provision for us. Notice, first of all, in verse 32, the reality of the believer's trouble. The reality of the believer's trouble. You may remember the context of Jesus' words in John chapter 16 Starting in John chapter 13, he called his disciples together and they met in an upper room so that they might partake together of the, of the Passover before he would go to the cross. And it was while he was there um, taking in the Passover with them that he also instituted what we call the Lord's Supper, the ordinance of communion. And while he was with them taking the Passover and then giving to them the Lord's Supper, he also instructed them and prepared them for what they might do, not only immediately following his death and resurrection, but in the days and the weeks to come after that. This is his instruction that he gives them before he will go to pray for them. We find that in John chapter 17, and it is his word of instruction for them before he will be betrayed by Judas. We find that in John chapter 18, the first two verses. These, these in fact, these words at the end of John chapter 16 are the last instruction he gives before his betrayal. So these are essential words to prepare the disciples for the trial of Jesus Christ. They're essential words to prepare the disciples for the cross of Christ. And it is, they are essential words to prepare the disciples for the resurrection and for the ascension and for their being alone apart from Christ physically, though endowed by the Holy Spirit. Jesus here is particularly instructing them about the troubles that they will face and His provision for them in the troubles that they would face. Jesus' blunt speech about the trials of life was essential for the disciples and brothers and sisters. It is is essential for us as well. Some of our troubles might be different than what the, the disciples experienced in those weeks, but Christ's provision for us is the same as His provision for them also. My brothers, His provision was adequate for them, and His provision will be adequate for us. We are not left destitute. We have what we need in Jesus Christ and by Jesus Christ and through Jesus Christ for this very circumstance. In verse 28, Jesus reminded the disciples of His 
incarnation. Notice he says in verse 28, I came forth from the Father and I have come into the world. There he is talking about his birth and his coming to earth. And then he also reminds them in that verse of his ascension back into heaven. I am leaving the world again and I am going to the Father. And and the disciples in hearing those words claim that they understand and now believe Jesus Christ. Notice verse 29. His disciples said, Lo, now you are speaking plainly and you're not using a figure of speech. Now we understand you, Jesus. Now we, now we understand what you have been saying. Some have suggested that the disciples are, are speaking impulsively and arrogantly, that they really don't understand yet and that they wouldn't understand until after the Spirit was given to them. And, and given Jesus' gentle correction of them in verse 31 where he asks the question, Do you now believe? Now, perhaps it is true that they have spoken somewhat rashly. But it is also true that, that in this statement, the disciples have made perhaps the, the clearest corporate affirmation that they have ever made about their faith in Jesus Christ and who He is. Notice what they say in verse 30. Now we know that you know all things. They they are affirming there His omniscience. And, and by affirming His omniscience, they're also affirming that He is deity and that He is God. Notice also not only that they affirm His omniscience, you know all things, but also, and you have no need for anyone to question you. That is, he has authority, that he has a supremacy and an authority that supersedes all others and no one can call him into question. And because of that, they say at the end of verse 30, by this we believe that you came from God. We believe. We believe in your origin. We believe in who you are. We believe in you. They they were believing in His role as the sovereign Savior. This is a clear testimony to their faith in Him. And after that response in verse 30, Jesus responds with a test and a warning for them. I've already alluded to it. Verse 31, Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? With that question, Jesus is not asking whether or not they believe that He is the Savior. They've already affirmed that. They've already explained that they believe that He is the Savior. He, He is not questioning that. What He is questioning is whether their lives and their faith is hardy enough and strong enough and adequate enough for the circumstances that they'll be facing in the coming days. Do they really believe in the sufficiency of the One whom they call Lord? This is like a one-question final exam before Jesus Christ is crucified and then ascends into glory. Will they stand in difficulty and trouble? And having asked that question, then Jesus gives a warning of the days to come. Notice verse 32, and this is where I want to draw our attention. Behold, an hour is coming. And then notice how he modifies that. And it has already come. There is an hour, there is a season, there is a time that is looming. And in fact, it is no longer looming. It is on them. They are in the scenario. And what are they in? He says, an hour is coming for you to be scattered. What will that scattering look like? You will be scattered each to his own home and to leave me alone. The scattering 
was on them in the sense that it was only hours away. When Jesus, when Jesus went to the cross, everyone left him. Only Peter and John were at the trial. And of those two, Peter denied him and only John stayed with him. And, and hours after that, all of the disciples were in a room hiding together, locked behind a door, wondering what would happen to them, terrified of those who might come to do harm to them. They had left him. They were scattered. He was alone. In fact, even after Jesus appeared to them, seven of the eleven, including two of his closest disciples, Peter and John, would go to Galilee to contemplate a return to their fishing careers. They were all gone. They all left. I want you to notice that this scattering is not because they were being directly persecuted. They scattered because they were anticipating hard times and they were anticipating persecution. And frankly, my friends, it is no overstatement to say that they simply seem to quit and give up. We're done. Jesus is gone. We're alone. We have nothing left. We're on our own. The circumstances are too difficult. I'm checking out. I'm gone. They could not see a way out. They could not see a way through. So they would leave the Savior and they would leave each other. And Jesus' prediction was true. They did go to their own homes. They did leave Him alone. My friends, this is the kind of trouble that comes from us when others sin against us. And, 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 and then... It gets complicated by this, our own sin of being unfaithful and our own sin of not trusting in, in times of persecution. The disciples would be scattered. They would run in fear. They had trouble. From Friday um, just before dusk through Sunday morning, they were contemplating life without Jesus Christ. If, if He was put to death, then what will become of us? And this kind of scattering is not atypical. It is the kind of scattering that believers in Jesus Christ can come to expect. But, but friends, this is not the kind of scattering that we are experiencing today. The coronavirus is not afflicting Christians only, and it is not even afflicting Christians particularly. This is, this is just one of those hard realities that is true for all people everywhere, that there is suffering in this world. And it is that kind of suffering that Jesus alludes to in verse 33. Notice verse 33, the middle of the verse. He says, in the world you have tribulation. There are many kinds of problems in life, including living in a fallen world. Things like colds, cancer, coronavirus, and car accidents. They are the trials of this world. They, they, they are trials that have always existed since the fall of creation. They were trials that were experienced, these kinds of trials by the disciples. And they are the kinds of trials that we experience today. And it's not exclusively coronavirus that gives us these kinds of trials. They could not be avoided by the disciples and they won't be avoided by us. I want you to notice this word. He says, in the world you have tribulation. That word tribulation simply refers to pressures. They are the kinds of hardships and sufferings that come by, by weights being placed down on us and exerting pressure against us. 
Sometimes this word refers to unique distresses that believers in Jesus Christ experience because they are followers of Christ. But, but it also can be much broader than that. It can, it can also be used simply to refer to our own personal weaknesses, illnesses that are common to man, storms that are experienced in nature, tornadoes and thunderstorms and flooding. They're, they're just the, the common things of life that everyone experiences. Pastor Tim Keller talks about the reality of this kind of suffering No matter what precautions we take, he says, no matter how well we have put together a good life, no matter how hard we have worked to be healthy, wealthy, comfortable with friends and family and successful with our career, something will inevitably destroy it. That's the kind of suffering that comes as part of our tribulation of living in this world. And Scripture affirms this kind of common suffering. Suffering and difficulty is common to all people. We find that in in Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus reminds us in verse 45 that rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. Storms come in the lives of, of those who are both just and unjust. It has nothing to do with your relationship with Him. We also find in Isaiah 45:17 that God has sovereignly ordained suffering. He is the one that is behind the suffering. Even Job tells us that that over and over. We also find in 1 Thessalonians 3:7 that God provides comfort and encouragement for our troubles. So while there is trouble in this world, God is also providing comfort for us. Romans chapter 8 has reminded us even as we read earlier this morning that all creation suffers but no suffering can compare to the glory that is to come. So suffering is normal. Suffering should be expected. Suffering should be anticipated. Suffering in some sense and the trials of life should not be pushed back against as if something unusual was happening because it is the norm of life. Our problem is that we have cultivated a scenario where we believe that we are entitled to a life without persecution, without suffering, without hardship, and without difficulty. We want, or maybe I should say, we worship a trouble-free life. And when we don't get a trouble-free life, we become disappointed and despairing and angry. Now, the particular situation with coronavirus is unusual in the sense that pandemics really are a once-in-a-century event, a, a pandemic at least like this one. But the general circumstance of coronavirus is not unusual in that people get sick every day, people die every day, people lose jobs and income, and the stock market rises and falls, and we are inconvenienced by not getting what we want at the grocery store or a restaurant. This isn't unusual in that sense. It's, it's the norm. We should expect it. We should anticipate trials. That is the way of life in a fallen world. My friends, that was the way it was for the disciples in the time in which they lived, and we should expect nothing different. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, reminds us that nothing strange has happened to us when we are persecuted for our faith. Here, Jesus also is reminding us that difficulties in life are also typical and should be expected by all people. This is a norm. 
We don't need to despair as if something unusual has happened. Yes, this particular event is unusual, but suffering, difficulties, trials, hardships, burdens, weights are the norm of living in a fallen world. Jonathan Edwards captured this truth when he wrote this in a letter to his daughter, Esther, while she was recovering from an illness. I would not have you think any strange thing has happened to you in this affliction. It is according to the things of this world that after the world smiles, some great affliction soon comes. God has now given you early and seasonable warning not to depend on worldly prosperity. Therefore, I would advise, if it pleases God to restore you, to count upon no happiness here. Labor while you live to serve God and do what you can and endeavor to improve every dispensation to God's glory and your own spiritual good and be content to do and bear all that God calls you to do in this wilderness and never to expect to find this world anything better than a wilderness. That is well said. This world is a wilderness. This world is not the place of our fulfillment. This world is not our satisfaction ultimately. This world is a place where we can expect to find difficulty and trial. But that does not mean that the disciples or we should be hopeless. And here we come to the main part of this passage Notice verse 33, the provision of the believer's peace. The provision of the believer's peace. Frequently, Jesus would say things that just didn't seem to fit the context of, of, of the circumstance. So, like for instance, in Mark chapter 2, when four men dig through a roof and drop down through the roof a a man who is lame on a pallet. And Jesus says to him, your sins are forgiven. That just seems to be incongruous to the moment. Or when Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees, he says in John chapter 10, I and the Father are one. It, It didn't seem to fit the need of the moment. It certainly didn't fit the theology of the Pharisees. And when Peter one of his most intimate disciples questioned something he did. Jesus said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. That, that, that seems to ring harshly on our ears. It, it seems to be the wrong kind of thing to be said in that moment. And, and here we find one of those words of our Savior that, that at first glance doesn't seem to ring true. Notice what he says, verse 33. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. These things I have spoken to you. You could almost hear the disciples thinking or even saying, Really? You just said this about tribulation? You said, we will have tribulation. We will be scattered. We will leave you. We will go and and leave you alone. And you said that so that we had peace. But one, one of the things that we should note in this passage 
is that Jesus had said multiple other things in the other room. In fact, that little phrase, these things I have spoken, is used seven, seven times in this upper room discourse. And, a, and an eighth time he says, these things I have commanded you. And when Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you, he's not just saying, I've spoken to you, warning you about the, sa- the scattering that's going to come. I've not just warned you about the tribulation that you're going to have to endure, but he wants them to remember everything that he has said to them in the upper room. So we do well to to just glance back at these chapters starting in chapter 13 and 14 and think about what was it that Jesus said to the disciples. Notice 14.3, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. I, I will not leave you as an orphan, Jesus says. He'll say that in verse 18. And I will come back for you again. He says that so that they would have peace. Or notice 14.13, Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. If you pray and you ask according to my will, I will answer. And I say that to you so that you will have peace. Even though he goes, he reminds them, not only that He will come again, verse 18, but I will give you another Helper that He may be with you forever. That's verse 16. Verse 26 of chapter 14, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in My name, He will teach you and all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. I'm sending the Holy Spirit and I'm sending the Holy Spirit and I'm reminding you of that so that you will have peace. He reminds them in chapter 15 of the joy of keeping the commandments of Jesus Christ. That's verses 10 and 11. He reminds them in verse 18 and following of chapter 15 that suffering is not unusual and because they are following Jesus Christ, they can expect it, but at the same time, He has given them what they need so that they can be courageous. That's chapter 16, verse 1. Even though He will leave them temporarily, He will return to them and they will have joy. That is chapter 16, verse 16. For a little while you will no longer see Me and again a little while and you will see Me. Verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and you will lament, but the world will rejoice, but you will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. He reminds them also, in verses 23 and following, that the Father loves them and the Father will care for them as a father. He tells them these things so that when they are suffering, that they will know the peace of Christ, the provision of God. We, we don't need, brothers and sisters, we do not need a trouble-free life to have peace. We need these things to have peace. And He, Jesus Christ, gives Himself for that very purpose. So Jesus says, These things I've spoken so that in Me you would have peace. He warns them of the suffering that is coming and He reminds them that He is adequate to give them the peace they need in the midst of that suffering. Let's also think for just a moment what Jesus means with that word peace. 
He uses that word to refer to an absence of strife and a presence of a sense of contentment and well-being and rest in the midst of that suffering. This idea of peace was a particular theme on this night. Remember chapter 14, verse 27? Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled and neither let it be afraid. It's, it's a theme that would drive what he says to them on that evening. It's also a theme of the resurrection that would come after that. Chapter 20, verse 19 Jesus came and stood with the disciples who were behind another locked door for fear of the Jews and stood in their midst and said to them, 2019, peace be with you. Verse 21, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. Verse 26, after eight days, Thomas now with them, Thomas who doubted the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and he came and stood in their midst and said, peace be with you be with you. It is, a, it is a presence of a sense of contentment and joy and satisfaction and rest. It is not the absence of difficulty. It is the presence of something that comes from God to provide us the rest and the peace that we need. And notice that the peace is only, as Jesus said, in me. I've spoken these things, notice the text, so that in me you may have peace. That phrase is, is setting up for us a contrast. It's, it's unspoken, but it's clear what Jesus intends. The contrast is between in me and everything that is not in me that is in the world. In me, you will have peace. In the world, you will not have peace. In me, you will have a peace that is eternal And outside of me in the world, you will have only that which is temporal and not lasting and not satisfying. Only, only when we are connected to Jesus Christ will we have the peace and the contentment and the joy that we need. And the peace that Jesus is talking here about is the subjective peace that we experience that's based on the objective reality of our peace with God. So, so, We feel peace. We we have this sense of contentment because of a reality that God is no longer our enemy because we have trusted in Jesus Christ that that God is now for us and is no longer against us. We, We are in reality, objectively, at peace with God. And because... We are at peace with Him. We experience a sense of peace in our lives. My friends, if you are not experiencing peace in the middle of the coronavirus, is it because you do not have a genuine, a real, a substantive peace with God? Is God still your enemy because of your sin? Or are you a follower of Jesus Christ? Do you live dependently on Him? And my friend, if you are not a believer of Jesus Christ, if you are not following Him, if you are not leaning on Him, if He is not your sufficiency, I urge you, I compel you this morning to trust Jesus Christ. He is your only provision of peace. You will never find peace anywhere else. 
You will never find peace at the grocery store, even if all the paper good aisles are filled back up again tomorrow. That will not provide you peace. You will not be provided by peace even if the stock market bounces back and goes to higher heights even tomorrow. That will not give you lasting peace. The only lasting peace that you will ever have is in the person of Jesus Christ who died to take away your sins, to put you in fellowship with God so that you might live for Him. And friend, if you are not a believer this morning, I, I ask you, I beg you, I plead with you, Would you trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior? Would you ask Him to remove your debt of sin and He will liberate you from your sin and give you something to live for? He will give you you a peace. He will give you a satisfaction that will supersede anything else. Remember what Jesus said in Luke chapter 12. I alluded to this last week. Luke chapter 12 Verses 4 and 5, I say to you, Jesus says, My friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I will warn you to whom to fear. Fear the one who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Let's take that same passage, Luke chapter 12, and let's substitute in there coronavirus. Let me read it this way. My friends, do not be afraid of coronavirus, which may kill the body, and after that has nothing more that coronavirus can do. But I warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. My friends, if you're in Jesus Christ, coronavirus cannot take away anything of value from you. Everything that is valuable to you, you have if you're in Jesus Christ. Coronavirus can't take it away. Cancer can't take it away. Nothing can take it away. If we are saved by Jesus Christ, we are secure and we have nothing to fear. And when we are fearful of falling stock markets and illness and broken relationships and death, it is simply because we have never learned to fear God. We are fearing the smaller, inconsequential things in life because we have never learned to fear the greatest things in life. And so we think that the smaller things are the biggest thing. People fear for the loss of food and finances and toilet paper and death because they have not learned to truly fear God. We are not at peace in our hearts because we think that the smaller things in life are the great source of peace. And when we lose those, we then feel like we have lost everything and we have forgotten that only Christ can can give us the peace that we long for. And notice that this is a guarantee, verse 33. In me, you have peace. He has provided it. He has given it. It is sufficient for us. Just one More reminder before we move on. Chapter 17, Jesus' prayer, he says in verse 15, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. Jesus has not promised to keep us from problems, but he has promised to keep us. And that is where we must rest. 
So I want you to notice verse 32, the reality of the believer's trouble. I want you to notice the first part of verse 33, the provision of the believer's peace. And then lastly, I want you to know the command for the believer's courage, the command for the believer's courage. Notice the end of verse 33, in the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. When he says take courage, that word courage means to be of good cheer, to be, to be comforted, to be, to be bold. Most people are bold when there's no trouble. But, but then take a little bit of trouble and mix in a little bit of trial and stir it with interpersonal conflict and boldness and courage flee. Yet Jesus commands the eleven, be bold. Be courageous. Did you notice that in the text? Take courage. That's a command. It's not something that he provides. It's something that he is compelling them to do. And the the question is, how can you command this? It, It seems preposterous. Jesus, have you not understood the persecution that's coming? Jesus, have you not understood the trials and the burdens? Have you not understood the weights? How can we be courageous in this day? He says you can be courageous for one reason only. There's only one reason to be courageous, and it is the heart of this passage, and it is the end of this passage. I have overcome the world. He does not say be courageous because you have overcome the world. The personal pronoun here is emphatic. I have overcome the world. I, I, Jesus, have overcome the world. I and I alone have overcome the world. And and we might interpret it this way. Because I have overcome the world, you be strong. Because I am victorious, you be strong. And that's indeed exactly what the word overcome means. It's, It's the basic word for victory. He means I am the victor. And the victory is not his personal victory as if he had a problem and and he was victorious for himself. He means he is victorious on behalf of others who will trust in him. He is victor over the world for all men and on behalf of all those who will trust in him. It's a corporate victory that is accomplished by him alone for his body, for his church. And his victory demonstrates His mastery. Now I want you to notice something else essential about this text. He does not say, I am about to go to the cross and at the cross I will die and I will be resurrected and on Sunday morning I will rise again and then I will be victorious. No, notice what he says, I have already overcome. On Thursday night, Before the trial, before the cross, before his death, before his resurrection, before his ascension even, on Thursday night he says, I have overcome. He already is victorious. He is already conqueror. He is already king. He is already victor. When did did Jesus fight the battle? When did Jesus win? He won over Satan in the wilderness and when Satan tempted him. He won every time he bound Satan by binding the demons and casting them out of, out of sinners. He, he um, demonstrated his victory when he prevented Satan from carrying out his plan against Christ until it became God's time for Christ to die. And he demonstrated his victory supremely 
in living a righteous life and fulfilling the law, accomplishing what none of us would ever be able to accomplish on our own. My friends, what I want you to see in this passage is that Christ is victorious in every part of life. Nothing anywhere has defeated him. Nothing has caused him the slightest harm, the slightest problem, the slightest trouble. Before Christ ever went to the cross, my friends, he already is victorious. He was a savior in full control of his destiny in the courtroom and on the cross and in the grave and on resurrection morning. Every action of Christ on those days were the action of a victor. His actions were not the actions of a defeated man. He was victorious so that we could live boldly with him and for him. Your friend, friend, what the good news is, is that we do not have to sin. Because Christ is victor. Friend, the good news is that death never wins. Christ is the victor. Friend, righteousness is possible because Christ is the victor. Friend, peace and contentment and boldness are not empty commands. Christ is the victor. Friend, take courage. Christ has overcome the world. Sin hasn't defeated him. Death hasn't defeated him. Coronavirus hasn't defeated him. If you are in him... You are safe. If you are in Him, you can live boldly because He has overcome everything that could attack you and come against you to defeat you. And He is victorious. Friend, you may suffer. Now let me correct that. You will suffer. But if you are in Christ, your suffering is not fatal. Your suffering is not final. Christ is final. And Christ is victor. As we close, hear the words of Pastor Joe Thornton. It isn't wrong to ask God to relieve you of your pain, but it is more important that in the midst of the pain you rely on the promise of God to work such experiences for His glory and for your good. To use these times as a means of perfecting your faith, of strengthening your spirit and transforming your life in such a way that you are becoming more like Jesus. I know you want relief, but often relief comes not in the form of the removal of the affliction, but in the strengthening of your faith. And that is what these trials are designed to do. Test, prove, and strengthen your faith. As you go about your tasks this week in a very unusual week, remember your trials and your suffering are not unusual, but your way out of your suffering is unusual. It is in the person of Jesus Christ. And when we live in Him, and when we live with Him, and when we live for Him, He will give us the peace we need. He will give us the boldness we need. He will give us the courage we need to remain faithful and to remain faithful to Him. Our Father, we thank You for the reminder of this Word. We we are thankful, Father, for the reminder of the sufficiency of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We are thankful, Father, for all that He has accomplished in overcoming the world so that when we might be tempted to feel like and think like 
He has defeated us, or that, excuse me, that the world has defeated us and that we have been conquered. That in Him, He is giving us everything that we need. We thank You, Father, for the provision of this great Savior for our need. We thank You for this reminder from this text of this great Savior. And this week, might we walk in boldness with Him. We pray in His name. Amen.